This morning we are continuing uh, with our theme in harmony with the Friday, Friday night meetings. Those of you that were here last night, um, what were you discussing? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And we will continue that theme this morning. Take a Bible if you have one. If you're not, there's one in the pews there. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. How are you doing this morning? So you didn't want to come up on the platform and let me dedicate you to the Lord, huh? So I dedicate you in this sermon. We're dealing with a really big topic this morning. It's a massive concept, and, I, and we're dealing with the very heart of God. So when we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about God. God is a forgiving God way more than most of us can even begin to understand. Jesus talked to the disciples and told them how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. So keep your finger in chapter 18. And as we go to chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe the Sermon on the Mount is about how Christians should live. If you heard Christians talking with one another, you'd get lots of different ideas on how they should live. Some feel it's okay to break every rule in the book and just run to God when your conscience is bothering you. Others think, no, we're called to holiness. Well, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, as I, as I read this, is telling us how to live. And so he says in verse 9, this is how you should pray. And it's a prayer that most of you have in your memory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever prayed this prayer? How many times? Many, many, many times. Give us today our daily bread. And then here's where it gets interesting. Forgive us our debts, our sins, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That seems a pretty dangerous prayer to me. And it's so shocking that Jesus mentions it in verse 14 and 15. He singles out this point of forgiveness by saying, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Quite strong, don't you think? powerful statement. Now turn to chapter 18, because that's the passage we're dealing with. And we're going to pick it up in verse 21. And there's a man called Peter who seemed to always have something to say. And his question was, in the light of probably in the light of what Jesus has said about prayer and forgiveness and what he has said about a brother who sins against you in verses 15 through 20, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, 
How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How many times? Some of the rabbis and the Jewish leaders would say three. They would base that on a passage in Amos. Peter is more than going the extra mile, is he not? Because how many times does he ask? Seven times. Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Or in this translation here, but 77 times. So different manuscripts have different readings there. Is it 70 plus 7? 77. Is it 70 times 7? Or is it an infinite number? This is not about arithmetic. This is not about quantifying something. This is about something much greater than that. We're dealing with the very heart of God. Somebody said, to forgive is divine. We can use that, Karen, as a title for this sermon. To forgive is divine. And Jesus is saying this this art of forgiveness, this gift of forgiveness should be no number on it. Infinitesimal, how many times we should do that. So that's kind of the context of this passage. But it doesn't end there. In fact, Jesus has a story that he wants to tell. So let's look at the story or the parable. Remembering that a parable usually has one point that it's trying to make. And you don't read your theology in all of the details. And the parable says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Don't you think that it's good that this king wants to settle accounts? Who does this king represent? Who does this king represent? God. Don't you think that it's good that God wants to settle accounts? And don't you think that it's good that God wants to settle accounts with you? Ah, oh, you're not so sure about that. Yes, God, God should settle accounts, but settle accounts with me? Whoa, that's getting a little bit too personal. And he began, as he began this, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And in the footnote underneath, in my Bible, it says millions of dollars. 10,000 talents means nothing to you and I in our day and age. But think of a huge, massive number, something that could not possibly be paid off. So this debtor is brought to him owing this large amount. Verse 25, And since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. And that was not unusual in biblical times to do that. In fact, I can take you to some text in the Old Testament where it talks of, uses very similar 
language. If you've, if you've made the debt, that's on your head. And if you can't pay the debt, then you, your family, are all going to suffer. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Oh, yeah. The servant's master, what did he do? He took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. That's pure grace, pure mercy, total forgiveness. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a much smaller amount, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Quite a shocking, strong statement, don't you think? So who is the king? Jesus or God? Let's call that God. It makes more sense to call it God. Who is the first servant that had the massive debt? Us. It's really important to catch that. That's us. That's you and me. That's all those sins that we've committed against God. Sometimes when I'm trying to teach people about the gospel, I say, how many sins have you committed? It's a really interesting question to ask people. It's pretty hard to answer impossible to answer, but at least it gets them thinking about how much they have, how much they owe to God. And then, of course, the second servant, who do you think that is? The one with the small debt. Yeah, our fellow man, our neighbor. There was a woman with 14 children ages 1 through 14. She sued her husband for divorce on the grounds of desertion. When did he desert you, the judge asked. 13 years ago, she replied. Well, if he left 13 years ago, where did all these children come from? Asked the judge. Oh, said the woman. He kept coming back to say he was sorry. <laughs> what did Peter ask? How many times, Lord, should I forgive my brother who sins against me? A villager said to the little monk, my neighbor slapped me, should I forgive him? Yes, answered the little monk. How many times should I forgive my neighbor, the villager asked. 
Well, how many times did he slap you? Asked the little monk. Once came the answer. Then forgive him once, said the little monk. But what if he slaps me 50 times, the villager asked. Then you should forgive him 49 times, came the answer. Why only 49 times if I, if I was struck 50 times, the villager asked. And the, the little monk answered, freely accept the 50th slap. You would deserve it for bringing such a fool to allow yourself to be slapped the first 49 times. In Jesus' culture, the way that they thought, the way that they were taught in the synagogue, in their homes, was numerically the letter of the law, the eye for eye, the tooth for tooth concept. Jesus came along and gave a huge paradigm shift. Jesus would talk about, as we've already seen, forgiving without number. Because it's not about number. It's about something that has to come deep from within the heart. It's about you and I learning how to mimic God. There is a text in Ephesians where it, it actually uses that kind of language. Imitate God. Mimic God. That's, that's real holiness teaching. To be somehow, some way like God in the way that we treat one another. Earlier this morning, many of us were studying um, about relationships. Relationships is where it's all at. You and I have a relationship with God. Hopefully, we have a close relationship with God. Part of that relationship is that God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us, right? And most of us, or hopefully most of us, really make a big deal about that, as we should. It's something apparently we're going to be studying for eternity, how God could send Jesus Christ to die for your sins and for my sins. We will never exhaust that. But we don't spend that much time thinking about extending that grace to other people. And that's what this parable is about. It's about you and I being like God as far as agents of mercy, agents of forgiveness, agents of grace. What was the problem with that first servant? What was the problem? Was, it, was the problem that, yeah, his first problem was he had this massive unpayable debt. So maybe that's the first thing we should have in our mind. He should at least have been grateful that the debt was wiped clean. You know, some of us have debts on our mortgage that we find hard to pay off. There's a lot of people who are underwater in that, in that sense. Wouldn't it be nice to have some wealthy benefactor just come along and say, no big deal, 
I'm going to wipe the slate clean. Mortgage-free. I think most of us would appreciate that. So this massive debt, and instead of having a heart of gratitude for what God had done, he goes out, and the way it says in the, this translation here, it says he found. He's actively going out looking for this little debtor, let's call him the little debtor, the second servant, and then he grabs him by the throat. He's going to choke, choke the money out of him. Doesn't it actually use that language in the text? Verse 28 and uh, 28, he went out, he found one of his fellow servants, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you, want, what you owe me, he demanded. So there doesn't seem much gratitude there for what God had done for him. And that really is, to me, the main point of this parable. It's not about God taking, giving us salvation and taking our salvation away. It would be easy to interpret that if you didn't know other things that Jesus says about salvation and eternal life and then all the other uh, New Testament writers. This is about the man, the person who does not forgive has never really been forgiven. And the person who has been forgiven will have to learn. This morning when we talked very briefly about relationships, we talked briefly about forgiveness. Many of you heard, had a whole seminar for hours last night about that. Is forgiveness an easy thing? I don't think it was an easy thing for God. Pretty hard for me to prove that though, isn't it? Do you think it was easy to send Jesus to this dark world knowing what Jesus would go through? That's kind of hard for me to believe that that's an easy thing for God. But those of us who are expected to be, to be forgiving, and that is those who are forgiven by God, those who call themselves Christians, those people who call themselves in a right relationship with God, you know how hard it is when somebody has raped your daughter, somebody has sexually abused you, you know how hard it is to find forgiveness for those people, right? One of the um, books that I've been reading, which is a really powerful book, is by a Croatian theologian, and it's called Free of Charge. And he goes into the concept of giving and forgiving. And it's very, very helpful. But he uses some illustrations there that are quite powerful. And he starts one of them by saying this. You never even hinted at blaming her, I said to my mother as we were driving together recently. Forty-seven years after the accident, I was finally piecing together one part of the puzzle I thought I already knew. My most beloved nanny, Aunt Malika, Milika, as I called her, the angel of my early childhood, whom I adored until her death at the age of 91, was in charge of us kids when the accident happened. I was one then, and my five-year-old brother Daniel had slipped through the large gate in the courtyard where we had an apartment. 
He went to the nearby small military base just two blocks away to play with his soldiers. On earlier walks through the neighborhood, he had found some friends there, soldiers in training, bored and in need of a diversion, even if it came from an energetic five-year-old. And on that fateful day in 1957, one of them put him on a horse-drawn bread wagon. And as they were passing through the gate on a bumpy cobblestone road, Daniel turned sideways and his head got stuck between the doorpost and the wagon. The horses kept going. He died on the way to the hospital, a son lost to parents who adored him, and an older brother that I would never know. Aunt Milica should have watched him, but she didn't. She let him slip out, she didn't look for him, and he was killed. But my parents never told me that she was partly responsible. Should I have told you? My mother replied to me, half unsure whether she did the right thing. Hmm. Most people would, I thought. When terrible things happen, people find someone to blame, even when there's no one to blame. Somebody must be at fault, they think, and they go on to make the first plausible candidate into a culprit. Aunt Milica was to be blamed, yet neither of my parents blamed her in front of their own children. Aunt Milica, the guilty one, remained my untainted angel. No, I told my mother slowly. By keeping silent, you did something very, very beautiful. I admire you so much for it. Love hides a multitude's of sins, says the apostle Peter. And then he goes on to talk in, in this section of the book about how hard it was for their parents to forgive. But somehow deep down, deep down in their heart, deep down in their soul, God gave them that gift of forgiveness. So that little child of theirs could grow, out, grow up with this guilty aunt and have no understanding of the mistake that she made and never harbored resentment against that woman or the soldiers who were responsible for the death of that precious five-year-old child. And the author of the book would later talk with his parents and kind of probe into that, how they could find the, the magnanimity, is that the right word? The, the largeness of grace in their hearts to do that. And the only thing the parents could put it down to is because God had forgiven them so much. Nobody is saying forgiveness, to forgive like God, is an easy thing. And some of you have had hurts in your life and still carry the wounds, the pain. And though that, those wounds and that pain, we have to be careful that they don't fester and that we process them the right way. Eventually, Johnny learned that with his mistake with the duck. 
He squirmed and he wriggled until he confessed. And he'd already been forgiven days and days ago. Let's make sure that you and I don't make the same mistake. First, let's pause at the end of this sermon and thank God for the incredible gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And then if we truly, truly appreciate that, that we are indeed forgiven by God, then, as hard as it may be at times, God expects us to pass on the blessing. Pass on the blessing of forgiveness to those who have harmed us and those who have hurt us. Whether they be in this sanctuary, in this church family, or in the larger Seventh-day Adventist church family, I bet if I pass the microphone down these pews, almost every single one of you could come up with something where you felt you've been violated, sinned against, hurt by someone in the church, right? And I know for sure that you would say yes if I asked you about the larger society. Could it be that some of these trials that we go through God allows them to take place to test what really is in our heart. Isn't that the punchline of the parable? You should have been merciful as I was merciful to you. But that forgiveness, that mercy, that grace has to come from deep down in the heart. And the idea of the heart is mentioned all the way through Scripture. It's a big concept in the Old Testament. People were sometimes doing things in a mechanical way, keeping the commandments in a mechanical way, and God would say, oh, push all of your sacrifices to one side. I have no interest in these things. I want it from the heart. Only God can give you and I that kind of of ability, gift, whatever we're going to call it, to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love towards us. And Lord, it feels so good to confess our sins to you and to know that you are so keen to forgive us our sins. But sometimes, Lord, we're not so keen and enthusiastic to forgive others that have sinned against us. So, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will make it possible to bring forgiveness and healing to our own souls and to extend that blessing out to our church members to the, throughout the Seventh-day Adventist Church and to the larger society in which we live. Lord, as we leave this sanctuary today, may we leave as agents of blessing and pass on the gift of forgiveness to a society that is in chains by sin and under the control of the devil. Lord, use us to set them free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.